My fellow Americans, the war in Afghanistan is now over. We will maintain the fight against terrorism in Afghanistan and other countries. We just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. We have what's called over-the-horizon capabilities, which means we can strike terrorists and targets without American boots on the ground, very few if needed. For nearly two decades, drone strikes have been a part of American warfare. But the laws that define who can launch these strikes, where presidents need oversight, where they can act unilaterally, it's often evolving and based on blanket authorizations from decades ago. The previous three U.S. presidents have redefined the rules guiding drone warfare. And since taking office, President Biden has made efforts to do the same on his terms. Biden has been tightening some Trump-era policies in an effort to limit drone strikes. And yet, things have changed for Biden as he navigates a withdrawal from Afghanistan. Earlier this week, he issued a drone strike in Kabul meant to thwart a planned attack by the Islamic State. That strike killed 10 civilians. So what will presidential power to issue drone strikes look like under Biden, a president who wants to reform drone policy, but is also faced with instability in the region where he just extracted U.S. military? How much power should the president have to act unilaterally when it comes to drones? And how will that question define this era of U.S. warfare? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. Later in this episode, I'll talk to Washington Post reporter Greg Miller about Biden's plans to reshape presidential counterterrorism drone policy. Also, I'll talk to California Congressman Ro Khanna about the balance he thinks the president needs to strike with Congress when it comes to drone warfare. But first, I wanted to understand exactly where U.S. drone policy is right now. I turned to Hina Shemsi of the American Civil Liberties Union. Hina is the director of the ACLU's National Security Project. I asked Hina how drones emerged as a popular U.S. weapon in the past two decades. The United States has been using drones both in and outside the context of recognized armed conflict. So, you know, recognized armed conflict would be for example, the wars in Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria. But it's also been using drones outside of that context in countries with which or in which the United States wasn't at war. So at various different times, that has included Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, to name just a few places. So then in both of these cases, who is authorized to issue drone strikes? How does this process happen? You know, what sounds like a very simple question actually has a bit more of a complicated answer. Um, and I just want to start off by saying that we talk about drones a lot and, and understandably it's part of the discourse. But the concerns are with respect to the use of lethal force, whether that's through a weapons platform like drones or a helicopter gunship or any other kind of weapon. And in the context of a recognized armed conflict, in terms of authority, the way that our system of checks and balances is supposed to work is that Congress, under the Constitution, is the only entity with the authority to declare and authorize war. And then the president, as commander in chief, has the authority to 
to determine, you know, what the armed forces do. The armed forces then follow their rules, which need to comply with the laws of war. In what we've seen in the last, oh, 20 years or so, starting with a drone strike by President Bush in Yemen in 2002, is that presidents, four successive presidents, have claimed the unilateral power to authorize the use of lethal force where Congress has not permitted it and where international law would not allow it outside the context of recognized armed conflict. And how is it that they've been able to do that? You know, over time, the justification has somewhat shifted. But in essence, successive presidents have used the congressional authorization for the conflict in Afghanistan, which was the 2001 authorization for use of military force, as well as the later 2002 authorization for the war in Iraq, and claims of self-defense authority to justify the use of lethal force, again, outside of recognized armed conflict. And where the issues start is that that's not something that Congress or international law have authorized or permitted. And what we've seen over the course of the last 20 years is a set of shifting legal and policy rationales that cherry pick from a variety of legal frameworks that are intended to safeguard international peace and security and individual life. Those are the laws of war, human rights law, and law governing states' use of extraterritorial force in self-defense. And successive presidents have put together essentially sort of a mishmash of those different frameworks to permit killing that under both international and domestic law is prohibited and would constitute extrajudicial execution because it is taking place outside the context of recognized armed conflict. I realize this has changed over the years, depending on the president who is in power. But before President Biden took office, what was the state of this mishmash of of different policies, as you put it, to guide when lethal force can be used? It really was under the Obama administration that this policy escalated and became entrenched. By the end of the Obama administration, the government, President Obama, had established a policy and essentially a bureaucratic framework for the use of lethal force against terrorism suspects that applied to what they called areas outside of active hostilities. Now, the administration didn't define areas outside of active hostilities, which is a term that has no basis in domestic or international law, but it was commonly understood to mean locations outside of recognized battlefields where the laws of war clearly apply. Now, the Obama administration had responded to controversy and criticism about what it was doing by entrenching this program. I'm the first one to admit that uh, we didn't get it all right on day one. There were times where, for example, with respect to drones, that I had to kind of stop the system for a second and say, you know what, we're getting too comfortable with our ability to take kinetic strikes uh, around the world uh, without having enough process to avoid 
consistently the kinds of civilian casualties that can end up actually hurting us in the war. So the Obama administration put in place by the end of, of that administration certain policy limits that were meant to be safeguards where lethal force authority could be used, who could be killed, and with what precautions. But then along came the Trump administration, which essentially quickly and easily did away with even the Obama administration's weak safeguards. And so under the Trump administration, the number of strikes dramatically escalated, as did civilian casualties. What is Congress's current role in checking these presidential powers, specifically around drones, and and should that role be bigger? Such an important question. For decades now, Congress has essentially abdicated its role under the Constitution of saying when the country goes to war and uses force abroad, under what conditions, with what limits, and what we've seen more recently is a real effort within Congress to do a couple of important things. One is to repeal the authorization for use of military force. It has recently started with repeal of the 2002 authorization for use of force in Iraq, which was against the Saddam Hussein regime, and also to engage in war powers reform, essentially war powers overhaul that would allow Congress to fulfill its constitutional role, its role in our system of checks and balances in declaring and deciding when the country does something which should be as extraordinary and exceptional as the decision to go to war. Drone warfare was always an uneasy fit into these laws because of its peculiarities. So the laws have always been a little murky depending on where these drone strikes are happening. There are different rules for different places. Greg Miller is an investigative reporter for The Post based in Europe. He spent years reporting on national security. I asked him about Biden's evolving policy on drone strikes outside of conventional war zones. The administration had hoped to finish its playbook on this by the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. But the abrupt collapse of the Afghan government and a recent flurry of strikes in Somalia have really complicated that effort. My understanding is that the Biden administration kind of wanted to end up in a new place that would be somewhere between where things were under President Obama and where the Trump administration set its policy. And to do that, the Biden administration was going to basically have a two-pronged approach. If you were in a war zone or a place where you have active duty U.S. troops and forces fighting or in danger in some way, there would be greater latitude. You wouldn't need special permission from the White House to carry out a drone strike in places like that. But anywhere outside those zones, you needed to go through the White House again, basically the National Security Council, to get permission to get sign-off from a number of agencies that this strike was okay, legitimate, the targets were approved. And that hasn't been the case for a while. So with the U.S. leaving Afghanistan, now having left, which category does Afghanistan fall under? Right. So the turmoil in Afghanistan, to to put it mildly, has really disrupted a lot of these plans. Because I think, you know, for the Biden administration, they envisioned being able to continue conducting drone strikes in Afghanistan for months, if not years, 
with the cooperation of the Afghan government that the United States had helped to set up and support. That government's gone now, and so are the bases from which the United States was going to be operating these drones. So now you're flying drones from farther away places into a country where there no longer is a U.S. presence. And so it's really unclear right now, and I think that there's some indication that the Biden administration is kind of having to go back to the drawing board to work this out. So it's possible their new policy will have some way of accommodating these new developments from Afghanistan. I mean, it's definitely a work in progress, and they're already working it out to some extent because they are already conducting drone strikes from bases outside the country. There was a drone strike last Sunday. Reports indicate that that was carried out by a military drone, a, a Reaper drone, that was flying in from the Persian Gulf. In addition to the strikes in Afghanistan, Biden has ordered an increase in strikes targeting an al-Qaeda ally in Somalia. This is a new world. The terror threat has metastasized across the world, well beyond Afghanistan. We face threats from al-Shabaab in Somalia, al-Qaeda affiliates in Syria and the Arabian Peninsula, and ISIS attempting to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq and establishing affiliates across Africa and Asia. The fundamental obligation of a president, in my opinion, is to defend and protect America. Has anyone called the president's powers into question in regards to those strikes? I haven't seen any indication that anybody is challenging the the wisdom or legality of strikes in Somalia or Libya or, or other places like that. My interpretation or understanding of this is that if Somalia is seen as a place where the United States doesn't have exposed troops, doesn't really have a self-defense mechanism or argument, then yes, then these new Biden rules would kind of kick in before you could carry out a strike. If you were to find a terrorist target in Somalia, if the CIA did so or the Pentagon did so and then wanted to take a strike at that target, it would have to work through the special process that involves the National Security Council at the White House. It's a, it's a complicated thing. It slows things down. It allows different agencies from the Pentagon to the State Department to weigh in. More of this discussion with Greg Miller and my conversation with Congressman Ro Khanna coming up right after this break. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. President Biden has spent the week defending his decisions to pull out of Afghanistan and to bring the forever war to an end. That was the choice, the real choice, between leaving or escalating. I was not going to extend this forever war. And I was not extending a forever exit. But Biden has also pledged more drone strikes to put a stop to terror threats. To those who engage in terrorism against us or our allies, know this. The United States will never rest. We will not forgive We'll not forget. We'll hunt you down to the ends of the earth and we will, you will pay the ultimate price. So I asked Greg, can Biden really claim that he's ending this war if he's continuing to order drone strikes in Afghanistan? 
I mean, that's, that's like one of the ironies here or one of the points that legal scholars and some critics make is that he's taking a lot of credit for ending this war, but at the same time creating mechanisms whereby the United States will still be conducting military strikes. That's what drone strikes are. And so if the United States continues to hit targets in Afghanistan, is that war over or is just the sort of ground version of it over, the version that has American forces and bases and CIA operatives and bases inside Afghanistan? And what about the transparency around those efforts? Do you expect that we'll see more transparency in the Biden era around civilian casualties and what's happening with each of these drone strikes? You know, there's a lot of deja vu to to what we've seen uh, recently in Afghanistan, starting with the exodus itself, which reminded a lot of people of the American departure from Vietnam. But for me, you know, I covered the the height of the so-called drone war, drone campaign in Afghanistan and Pakistan during the Obama years, when there were hundreds of strikes a year. And now we've seen just in the past several days, this cycle play out. There's a strike. America claims that this was a legitimate target, cleanly hit, and then you see reports from reporters and sources on the ground saying, oh no, it's a family, women and children were killed. I mean, this was kind of characteristic of drone warfare for year after year after year during the Obama administration. You asked whether I think the Biden team will be transparent, and I think that remains to be seen. I think that they have been fairly open about these strikes. They've announced these strikes, which for years was something that did not necessarily happen. And the Pentagon press secretary, John Kirby, basically, when asked about reports that there were civilian casualties, acknowledged that the Pentagon wasn't in position to challenge that, which is, you know, it's a significant admission from the the top spokesperson for the Pentagon for him to say. When it comes to presidential authorization for acts of war, one congressman has had a lot to say. Congressman Ro Khanna is a Democrat representing California's 17th congressional district. There should be some oversight on what these drone strikes are, what are the authorizations that are needed to be able to conduct them, what is the goal of transparency, and how do we do it in a way that really is is minimizing civilian casualties and is honest about civilian casualties that do result. This summer, Congressman Khanna and Senator Elizabeth Warren sent a letter to the defense secretary about civilian casualties in U.S. military operations. The letter claims that the Defense Department has a history of underreporting numbers of civilian casualties from drone strikes. Congressman Khanna has been restating his call for transparency since Sunday, when a U.S. drone strike killed 10 Afghans, eight of them children. I asked him what more accurate reporting of civilian death tolls could mean for the future of drone strikes. It would take into account the human cost. It would take into account the families that are being destroyed, the weddings that are being interrupted, the uh, number of children that are being killed. These have an enormous moral cost, these strikes. They have an enormous cost in terms of how the United States is perceived in these parts of the world. They result in generations of people growing up with a vengeance against the United States because of what they perceive as lost family members or or friends as a result of it. So there is a real cost to these drone strikes. Now, in some cases, in my view, they are necessary when you have a terrorist target who is threatening harm to 
hundreds of civilians or to the United States, uh, there's often uh, little choice. I mean, if you, for example, have an actual car bomb, which could explode and kill hundreds of people, uh, we need to make sure that that doesn't go off. Too often, the drone strikes have, have been conducted without sufficient concern, empathy for the civilians who are being killed. I don't think we ought to just call it collateral damage. We ought to be very upfront about the ugly costs of war, that yes, we have to kill terrorists, but in the process, civilians die. And that the more we account for that, the more we report for that, the more cautious we will be in minimizing those civilian casualties. Has the U.S. made any improvements on this when it comes to considering the safety of civilians? Have we made progress? I think we have. I think we were making progress in the Obama administration. I know this weighed on the president, President Obama, deeply. My understanding is that he had to personally approve most of those strikes, and he took into account the enormous impact that could have on civilian casualties. Then we had the Trump administration. Uh, I don't think they had the same same protocols. Uh, the Biden administration is going to have to uh, make very tough decisions, and I'm very hopeful that human rights and strong protocols will be part of it, and that should be a, an appropriate part of congressional oversight, especially given that we're going to be relying on these over-the-horizon capabilities. Over-the-horizon capabilities is, in my view, just a euphemism for drone strikes. So if we're going to be relying more on these strikes, then we have to really make sure that we have procedures in place to minimize uh, civilian casualties and to be transparent. So the Armed Services Committee and others will uh, conduct oversight on this, and that's what prompted Senator Warren and my letter to the the Pentagon to let them know that this is something that Congress is watching and and cares deeply about. So what are your next steps here? What are your your goals in the next couple of months? Our goal is first to get transparency on what happened in the bombing that killed 10 civilians. We owe it to those families to explain what happened. The military has said that there was a car bomb that exploded and that that car bomb could have killed uh, many civilians and American troops. And we just need to confirm that, confirm the facts, and make sure that we are really accounting accurately for what happened. And then going forward, we need to have an accurate uh, assessment of civilian casualties anytime these strikes happen, uh, an accurate report to Congress, and an accurate procedural safeguards before we have those strikes. And those are all Uh, things that Senator Warren and I will be pursuing in our respective committees, the Senate Armed Services and House Armed Services Committees, to uh, make sure the administration does that. I supported the president's decision to strike the ISIS planners and the ISIS masterminds that killed 13 of our Marines and that posed great danger to our troops at the time, and to Afghan civilians. Just a quick note here to clarify. The attack last week killed 11 Marines, one Navy corpsman, and one Army staff sergeant, so 13 U.S. service members total. I also supported the president's decision to have strikes to prevent any of the bombing impacting our troops when we were there. So in that case, I think that the president was acting in his authority as commander-in-chief. What about his pledge to carry out more strikes in Afghanistan? Is that of concern to you? I believe we need to repeal the broad authorizations for military force that 
the president has had, but to have a much more limited authorization of military force that would allow him to have counterterrorism operations and to conduct strikes uh, against ISIS-K leaders who plotted the murder of the 13 American Marines. So then under Biden's proposed rule changes for drone warfare, the military would have to obtain consent from the State Department's chiefs of mission before a strike. That hasn't happened in these recent days in Afghanistan. So do you think in cases like this, in emergency situations, as you sort of just alluded to, do you think that the president should be unilaterally allowed to conduct strikes? I do think in the Afghanistan case, that was a justified use of the president's powers. There was an imminent threat to our troops. We had over 4,000 troops there. 13 Marines and other service members had been killed. There was actionable intelligence that people were targeting our troops, whether they were going to be firing rockets that were intercepted or using suicide bombers or using car bombers. And the president had every authority to act to prevent that kind of violence and to keep our troops safe. So uh, what I see the president having done in those cases was consistent with his powers to react to an imminent threat. So what's an example of an inappropriate time to use a drone for targeted killing from your perspective? Well, if they haven't gone through the procedures that the president has laid out, which uh, means the appropriate sign-off, if they haven't looked and evaluated critically that those targets uh, are actually uh, terrorists, and that if they haven't taken every possible uh, precaution to minimize any civilian casualties, all of those things have to be to be done. And then it has to be something that Congress has authorized. It has to go through the proper uh, procedural safeguards, and there has to be every effort to, to minimize civilian casualties. I went back to Hinesh MC at the ACLU for a final word on more defined presidential powers in drone warfare. Hina has litigated cases challenging targeted killings. I had one question that was still bugging me. Presidents of the past, Carter, Ford, Reagan, they've all used orders banning government employees from assassination. So how is it that these targeted drone strikes are different? Are these essentially assassinations? Well, your question goes to the heart of what has been so problematic and controversial, which is that before 9-11, before the 2002 strike that President Bush authorized, the United States used to criticize other countries for doing what we are doing now, using force that has not been authorized. And, you know, in many ways, I think targeted killing is, is a euphemism, much like, you know, another term that you might often hear, which is precision strikes, which takes away from the fact that these uses of lethal force are not permitted under either the Constitution or international law. And once upon a time, the United States would have been one of the first countries to say so. So then is it your assessment that presidents of the past have overstepped their authority with their use of drones? Yes. In the post-9-11 era, successive presidents have claimed the unilateral power to authorize secretive extrajudicial killing outside of any recognized battlefield with no meaningful accountability for wrongful deaths and civilian lives that have been lost and injured. What we, and in fact over 
113 organizations from the United States and around the world are asking for is an end to this program of lethal strikes outside of recognized battlefields, including through the use of drones, because it is unlawful and also because it has exacted an appalling toll on Muslim, brown and black communities in multiple parts of the world where it has been used. And we believe that 20 years into a war-based approach that has undermined and violated fundamental rights, the president should abandon it and instead abide by what he has said he will do, which is to adhere to human rights, to follow lawful avenues in response to challenges and threats, and to, to embrace an approach rooted in the rule of law, in racial justice, and that advances our collective human security. All right, Hannah, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? As always, thank you so much for listening, and if you can, share it with a friend. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Charlotte Freeland and Arjun Singh, with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 